Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Thank you so much for listening, for taking this time to hear a conversation about art and teaching. I so, so appreciate it. And I also love hearing your thoughts about these episodes. One great way to share is by leaving a review. I love reading them and they also help the show get seen by more people. I wanted to share just a few recent reviews. So this person says, schools are becoming more and more focused on academics, and as a mom of a daughter with ADHD, this podcast is music to my ears. Using creative expression is incredibly important in a young child's life, and I love the ideas and inspiration each week. Ah, Thank you. That is wonderful to hear. I love hearing from fellow parents who connect with this and can find valuable tips While I always think of the audience as basically myself, somebody who teaches and makes art and parents and kind of does all those things, I love hearing from people who are maybe more involved in one of those areas and can really get a lot out of it. So thank you, thank you for that. And one more I wanted to share from M. Lamour. This is a must listen for anyone who teaches art. Art is so important for children and adults alike. Rebecca is clearly passionate about her work and empowering others. Uh, Thank you. I am. (laughs) Thank you so much for that review. And again, if you would like to leave a review, I would really love to hear it. And you can do that wherever you're listening. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here and share images of their artwork on Instagram and on the website at teachingartistpodcast.com. Lucy Wunchen Leith is a Vermont-born and raised Chicago-based artist and designer who spends most of her time making comics and climbing rocks. She admires quilts, plants, zero-waste design thinking, and kids' big imaginations. From her statement, she says, as a cartoonist, Lucy's greatest inspirations are quilting and plants. She learned about quilts at school for fashion design, where she focused on children's wear and zero-waste design. Quilts, like comics, tell stories and are the ultimate zero-waste item. Traditionally made by many hands with scraps of old fabric from clothes and sheets, All quilts come with an inherent history. The stories of the hands that made them and the many hundreds of years of social and political practices and protests that come with the crafting tradition. A patch in a cotton quilt was once a rag, worn down from clothing, cut from cloth, woven by threads, spun from fibers, grown from a plant. She learned to love plants while working as a gardener, While she deadheaded daffodils, she listened to stories about design, the news, and people, and gained an appreciation for the beauty and resiliency of the slow-paced natural world. 
Later, she worked as a technical designer for a children's clothing company that advertised sustainability while overseeing massively unsustainable processes across the entire production line. Unlike the slow, loving, necessary, community-based craft of quilting and gardening, this job typified fashion as fast-paced commercial design. From the inside, she felt hopeless, trying to use knowledge of craft to advocate for sustainable practices. She recorded frustrations through words and pictures to share with people on the outside. Feeling trapped in the industry and the city, she started drawing the things that she missed, connecting with people and nature. She is finding her voice in comics by stitching together pieces of her life and admiration for the natural world. She can only hope that others receive these stories like a warm, colorful blanket clearly made with care. Beautiful. And you can see Lucy's work on our blog at teachingartistpodcast.com and on our Instagram. We will be sharing all week. And if you would like to be a featured artist, you can apply on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Kate was so uplifting and encouraging of artists. She shared her experience as an artist, writer, gallery owner, as well as a nurse and teaching artist. It was inspiring hearing how she took initiative to move from her career as a nurse that wasn't fulfilling her into a career as an artist. She had some wonderful tips for artists around mindset, overcoming creative block, and working with a gallery. Kate also talked about her love of color and following the color trends to pay the bills, but also following her passion for color. I also love the metaphors that she found in birch trees and how she used that as a jumping off point for a series of work. Kate Moynihan has been a professional painter for 30 years. Before painting full-time, Kate spent 12 years as a registered nurse. She contributes her interest in color relationships from this education, expanding on her color knowledge when she returned to college as an art major. Over time, her style has grown, but she holds true to her interest in color and texture. Her watercolors embrace a rice paper collage technique. When working with oil painting, Kate uses a palette knife, applied in thick, layered, impressionistic style. Her use of color captivates her audience and the texture engages them longer. Being a Michigan native, Kate finds the surroundings inspirational for her water shoreline scenes and woodland landscapes. Her signature motif is the white birch. Kate used the symbolism of the birch when she penned her memoir, A Lone Birch, My Artistic Journey, which launched in 2017. The tree with its craggy, imperfect bark standing tall reminded her to do the same. Prior to the memoir release, Kate published three junior fiction books based on humorous stories with her then young sons. She uses these books as a springboard when motivationally speaking. Recently, Kate retired from being the owner of Moynihan Gallery and Framing in downtown Holland, Michigan, after enjoying prominent community support for 25 years. Prior to owning the gallery, Kate created custom original watercolor and paper collages for business images in Chicago, Studio 84 West in Long Beach, California, and International Art Concepts in Los Angeles, California, who sold to Pier One and Spiegel Catalog. 
Kate was commissioned by Holland Tulip Time Festival for their 75th anniversary poster, submitting additional entries in 2015 and 2019 and being chosen as the top 20. I am talking with Kate Moynihan today, and she has such a wealth of experience I'm excited to get into, but I really want to start with your background. Could you walk us through your journey, your story? Absolutely. And I want to first say thanks for having me, Rebecca. It's always exciting to talk about art, and each one of us has a little bit different story. So of course, like many of you, I have a story, but background's always good. So I'll start. I live in Michigan. It's just a couple hours north of Chicago along the coastline of Lake Michigan. So I'm next mm-hmm. to the Great Lake, which means our landscapes are filled with dunes and trees and all that stunning eye candy for an artist. So I'm very happy here, but I didn't grow up here. I actually grew up on the other side of the state, the east side in a suburb of Detroit called Redford Township. And I was a kid in the late 1950s and I idolized my homemaker mom. I just hung on every blissful word that she said about marrying my dad right out of high school and how happy she was raising my brother and me. And the homemaker role was just kind of tradition. My aunts were homemakers. My grandmother had been a homemaker. Her mother was a homemaker. Even the popular TV shows back then were Donna Reed and Ozzie and Harriet, Fathers Knows Best. I, you know, I don't know if those are words that younger audience know, but it was really just tradition for a, a gal to be a homemaker. And that's what I courted. And that's what was expected of me. Mm-hmm. And then ironically, I had a high school sweetheart. And when he didn't propose, I decided I would go to the next best thing. And I picked nursing. I figured being a registered nurse would prepare me for the direction I wanted to go. And I did finish the course. And when I married at 19, we happened to move around a lot. I worked in nine hospitals in five different states. And with that many moves, you're just kind of low man on the seniority pole. And I was on the dreaded night shift. I was pretty much a staff nurse that just took routine vital signs, the same thing over and over. Not that it was the hospital's difficulty. It was my own. I just, you had to start somewhere and that's how the system worked. And so I'd always been a crafter and I could follow any kind of pattern. I did the macrame of plant holders for a house and I would sew, I'd sew aprons and anything that I followed a pattern on. And then it wasn't until I got a little bit older, I was in my late twenties and I took a watercolor class and it was the first time ever that I found something that kind of left that pattern roll and the paints would just go where they wanted to go. And it was much more intuitive and much more of a challenge. And Mm -hmm. I was actually hooked. I just took one adult ed class after another. And after doing that, I was still in that marriage and I made a poor marital choice. And I ended up moving a thousand miles from Michigan, my home state. And then unexpectedly, I found myself living alone. So there I was just kind of stranded, devastated, humiliated. It happened Mm -hmm. quickly after I got out there. So I was embarrassed to move back and face my mom, you know, making the decision that I had. And at the time I realized, you know, the only person that could get me out of that mess was myself. Mm -hmm. I got myself in, I needed to get myself out. I had two school-aged sons at the time. And if I wanted to, you know, teach them resilience and to march Mm -hmm. forward, I had to be a role model. And so ironically, when I moved to this city, I had discovered the two months earlier that they were remodeling their pediatric ward. And my eyes kind of lit up and I thought, I wonder if I 
come up with a, something that could help them with their new remodel. So marketing wasn't a thing back then for the hospitals. This was in the late 1980s. There was a Department of Public Relations, but I thought, well, I'll contact them. And I drew this cat that said he would care perfectly. And then I made coloring books so that it would help the parent and the children know what to expect in the hospital stay. And then I also gave them some, using the cat, some paintings that could go on the walls of the hospital to just make their stay in the hospital a little more fun and connect the two together and take it somewhere. So public relations didn't really know what to do with me. So they thought they should send me to the facilities manager. And a facilities manager is actually the person that takes care of all the function of the hospital, but they sent me there because of the remodel. Mm -hmm. So I marched my way down into the basement through his maze and I have my meeting next to the heating and cooling system, (laughs) but he half listened to my proposal And luckily he said, you need to see the VP. So he marches me up to the office and the VP introduces me to the president and I got the job. And so all of a sudden I had this great project that was beyond my nursing night shift and working, taking routine vital signs. And I loved it, but it wasn't really full time. Mm -hmm. So since I was living in the Midwest now, their style of art was a little more wildlife and very traditional. And coming from Michigan, I happen to be, especially with watercolor, a little more, not abstract, but just contemporary and free flowing. And so I contacted the Arts Council and asked if they could use any teachers. And luckily, since my style was different, I taught in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that opened up another avenue of income for me, but yet have the arts support me. And I thought, geez, maybe with this flexible part-time schedule, I could get myself back to college and try to become a marketing major. Because if I, a hospital like me, I could move back to Michigan and maybe I could market other hospitals and have some credibility than just being a nurse. And how many hospitals would be remodeling to fit that niche at the time? So I, I got into college and after 12 credits, the price was the same for tuition. So I was overloaded with economics and accounting, trying to go in this marketing direction. And I took one art elective just for fun for me. Sure enough, it's my only semester that I stayed a marketing major. I switched and I became an art major. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I was able to come up with some other part-time jobs that let me go to college and still give my time with the sons and just work that, that way together. And so I learned, though, I was able to find the money, but most of my money came from either art fairs, which were real unpredictable I would, you know, work with those metal frames that I could do myself with the one and only screwdriver that I had in my toolbox and they would scratch. And then the heat of the art fairs or the wind or the rain would ruin the paintings. So it was real inconsistent. And then I got another job working for a big company that we'd make these tiny little watercolor paintings and she chipped them. I'd ship them to her and she would sell them to Spiegel or Pier One. So all my marketing was done for me. I just had to send out these these little paintings. And it was good money, but it was again very volatile and unpredictable. It was like a roller coaster. I'd get one order and then I'd get nothing. And so I decided when I moved back, I really needed something that would give me consistent income. You know, as my kids were getting older, I I knew there'd be college tuition. And if I wanted this to work, I really needed something consistent. And I love teaching, but teaching wasn't my first passion. My passion, even though I didn't like the art fairs, I liked painting. And I decided, well, I think retail would be my niche because I could be the artist in residence and I could grow a consistent following. I could have 
loyal retail customers. I could build relationships. I could work with interior designers. And so I did have enough money from those part-time jobs to move back to Michigan and get back to family support. And I opened a retail gallery and that was 25 years ago. And I just retired from the art gallery after 25 (laughs) years. So that's kind of my background. Amazing. So much in there. And I love the, (laughs) when you said the only person who could get me out of this mess was me. And then you dove into it. Like you started just reaching out to people and saying, Hey, I'm an artist. Can I work with you? Can I teach for you? Can I, here's an idea. And that's really scary. You know, that's something a lot of people don't necessarily take that initiative. So that's huge. Well, thank you. My nursing help there again, because I don't know if you're familiar with what's called Maslow's level of hierarchy of needs. Yeah. There's seven level. Mm-hmm. And the one of the very basic ones is survival, mm-hmm. you know, food, water, shelter, and survival. And that's basically where I was. And mm-hmm. if I wanted to get to self-actualization, mm-hmm. I just had to persevere. And, you know, my sons have always been inspiration to me. And, and it's true. I think most mothers, it's in your heart. You are the role model, like a teacher. You're the mm-hmm. role model and they emulate you and they will follow you. And if I wanted them to have tenacity and endurance, I needed to pick up the pieces and mm-hmm. prove that I was worthy. If you hold regrets and remorse and you wither inside, you're not beneficial to anyone. Mm-hmm. It's, you just can't help them. Yeah. And the connection with the hospitals was really key. And I feel like maybe your nursing background helped you know how to approach that. And did you, when you were developing those ideas for the pediatric ward, did you bring in some of your nursing knowledge there? Oh, absolutely. I think all knowledge is accumulative. We get better and better as we age with just using the lessons we've learned, Mm -hmm. feedback from other people, cross-marketing other professions. I'm still an avid reader and an avid learner, and I do think it helps us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I'd love to hear more also about starting your gallery, starting that retail space, especially tips for people who might be interested in doing something similar. Well, I have several tips. I think one of them is most people I know trying to juggle time to paint plus time to run a business. And that's true for anyone like yourself, time to teach, but time to paint your own paintings, do your own podcast, your other dreams that you want to tackle and trying to juggle all of that. No matter, I pick the retail gallery, but no matter what you pick, it's still the art of juggling and wearing all those hats. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I, I do have four things that I think might be beneficial to others that worked for me and maybe they could mm-hmm. make it with a tweak or two work for someone else. And One of those, I'm a morning person. So I became a member of the 5am club because Mm -hmm. that's when my mind was fresh and that's the window when the phone didn't ring and I could really focus on that time of day. Mm -hmm. And even if you're a night owl, I think you can flip that around and make it work for you. You just have to realize Mm -hmm. your time and then respect that time. Mm -hmm. And then tip number two is I read a book called Eat That Frog. It's by Brian Tracy. And basically in a nutshell, what he says is that you want to start with the hardest thing on your list. Mm -hmm. He said, because if you conquer that, the rest of your day is easy. And 
It does. You know, I dreaded phone calls. And so if I would get those phone calls out of the way, it was like this monkey off my back, just gone. And then Mm -hmm. I'd reward myself with a second cup of coffee. And, (laughs) you know, it just made everything else seem less monumental. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, the third thing that worked the best for me was keeping a journal. And maybe you're not, I know journaling is really popular now, and it's still a good way to vent your feelings, but this can be even as simple as just a notebook. And it's different from a to-do list because a to-do list is more of an action orientated. And I first learned about journaling when I was back by myself being humiliated. And I actually bartered some counseling services. And that's another tip, I guess I just Mm -hmm. realized is that the art of bartering, it helped me financially, but it also helped my confidence that this Mm -hmm. counselor was willing to trade my services of a painting for her professional services. And it just boosted my morale. And so as I'm reflecting on this journaling as a tip, what she told me was that I want you to journal every day, but don't look back. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, why can't I look back? And she said, you can look back, but I want you to wait three weeks mm-hmm. minimum, because what will happen is you don't see progress on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Progress happens. It needs a little bit longer time. And then when you look back, you're going to see some progress. And it's interesting because I have a seven-year-old granddaughter now. And she said to me, grandma, let's run this 5k together. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can walk and I can shuffle, but I do not run. (laughs) Seven and she's seven and she's going to run a 5k. And I thought, well, if she can do it in the August heat, I can do Mm. it. I got online and I Googled and there's this little thing called couch to 5k in nine weeks. And luckily I had nine weeks. So it's kind of the same philosophy. Every day I had an assignment, I would walk run combination and the running accumulated and got more and more. And sure Mm -hmm. enough, after nine weeks, I ran the 5k. Uh. And you know, I I couldn't have run the 5k the day she told me, but if I measured the results later, I was successful. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think a notebook could work too, because it's just this tool to help you keep and measure and for people juggling a lot of things and they're working on their dreams outside of their nine to five job. If you write down even the smallest win, even if it's filling out an application for an art fair or whatever your dream is, mm-hmm. write it down. And then a couple of days later, you'll have another quick small win and you write that down. And sure mm-hmm. enough, if you look back, whether it's three weeks, like the counselor said, or nine weeks, like the 5k, you're going to see progress and you can, you know, this momentum builds momentum and progress fuels you and will keep you going. And you do reach your dreams. And I think mm-hmm. between those four things, the 5am club, tackling my first chore first, keeping the journal all help me become successful. And I guess I didn't, that's only three things. The last thing (laughs) that I did, but I do still think is beneficial is I tend to be a pretty impulsive person. Artists tend to be that way sometimes, but I made myself running the retail business to keep a little bit of a schedule, meaning that on Tuesday, I would aim for the morning, but If there ended up being a downtown association meeting, I had to go on Tuesday morning, I would do this Tuesday afternoon. So I was a little bit flexible, but every Tuesday was my bill paying day. Mm. And what this allowed me to do was as the bills would come in through snail mail back then, and I didn't open them, I would stick them in a file folder under bills. And then every Tuesday, I would pull them out, then I would assess them Mm -hmm. because I dealt with them as a unit. And only one time did I touch them. And it took that was a junk job, I called them. (laughs) Jobs you really don't want to want to do. They're called junk jobs. And 
by doing this on somewhat of a schedule on Tuesdays, then I just, I didn't have that monkey on my back. Oh, I wonder if I remember to pay that bill. I remembered if I did this, I just didn't get sidetracked. And so that's my fourth tip of of mm-hmm. trying to run a business and do your passion on the side and get to be follow your dreams. I think those are great tips. There's a lot in there. The journaling reminded me of the artist way and morning yes. pages. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. Those are great yeah. tools. And then well, that, one's a book, one's a tool, but yes. Yeah. And then that last idea, bulking your jobs, like yes. saying, I'm, oh, I'm going to do all of this at one time. That's so helpful. I'm now trying to get better <laughs> about setting up some systems for myself and just be better about scheduling and managing my time. And one tip I heard from someone, I don't even remember where, but I feel like relates to this is even now in our digital age, setting your email to have an autoresponder that says, I only check this email on Tuesdays, or I only check, yes. like, I'm not going to be coming back to it, remove it from your phone. <laughs> like just set your time. Your time is precious. Your time is important and give yourself that time to not be worrying about, you know, cause I have many different email accounts for all the different projects going on. So saying, okay, the gallery email is only going to be done on this day. The podcast email is on this day, trying to be more careful with your time. No, it's very helpful. You can call Mm -hmm. it block planning. Some people call it batch work, but it, it does help. It does help productivity. Yeah, I think that's huge. And then the other one, I'll have to look up that book, Eat That Frog. Yes. Um, That's great. But it's funny because I've seen, I feel like that's really good advice to kind of get the yucky things, the things you don't want to do out of the way. But the reverse advice I've heard is to set up your to-do list with an idea of the amount of time things are going to take and the really quick things, easy things, like get a bunch of them out of the way. Oh, sure. Quick and easy, they're done. And now you've got all these check marks and you feel good about it. Yes. Um, yes. So kind of the the opposite way of thinking about it. And I think either one is good. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's whatever motivates you and keeps mm-hmm. you wanting to get through it. So that yeah. is a good idea. That sense of accomplishment with check, check, check. Yes, totally. I know I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> and I still love, I use a lot of digital tools for planning, but I still love a paper to-do list where I can physically check things off and cross things out. And then the other thing you mentioned that I know you said was a lot more sort of unpredictable income, but I feel like I've spoken to other artists that have done art fairs and the idea of selling to larger stores like you, I think you said you had work in Pier 1 and maybe some of the other stores. Maybe if you could just talk through how you got into those originally. Sure, Um, sure. And the inconsistent income maybe is okay if you're still like a part-time or full-time teacher. Absolutely. Um, You may end up being a part-time person on wearing many hats and that's mm -hmm. your passion. Right. You like to teach on a part-time basis and then you like to paint on a part-time basis. And then I, I write, I I wrote some junior fiction books based on true stories when my kids were little Uh. camping. And then I ended up writing my memoir since it does have more elaborate story to it than the one I shared. Mm -hmm. And so you know, doing those different interests really do make you a part-time person at many things. Yeah. So I think my most experience comes from that people ask me the most would be how to get into a gallery. Yeah. And 
although I've you know, worked for interior designers and I have some tips on that, I'll, I'll start with the gallery just for the clarification. Mm-hmm. And what I found interesting there is we'll just start at square one. And that's for an artist to find their style. And by style, I mean something that represents them so that they're mm-hmm. not kind of, even though I did that cat motif for the hospital, it was one of my very first projects. And then as I got more into refining my style into the fine arts, I was able to niche down mm-hmm. and attract an audience. And that's also the benefit of a style, but it's a benefit of an art gallery too, because they need to know what they're going to represent and what it will look like. And you can be dependable because they're going to build an audience for you. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting in writing, there's two different schools of thoughts on writing. It's called either a pantser or a plotter. And a mm-hmm. pantser is kind of the artist I was when I was doing the art fairs and doing the creative work for the hospital and the different venues of styles. And the pantser is the person who kind of flies by the seat of their pants. Mm-hmm. That's where the term comes from. And mm-hmm. it's impulsive and it, it fit the part-time jobs that I was doing at the time. And I could use more intuition. And it was something that worked really well for me. Whereas later after I've, and it worked in the gallery too, being a pantser, because I would paint as I told you, the artist and resident, but I really responded to several things. One, what sold, I would kind of paint one at a time. If if a landscape would sell, that's what I would paint. And the other thing I responded to was the seasons. I live in Michigan. So I would paint winter scenes for Christmas. I would paint tulips for the spring flower because I live along Lake Michigan. It's beach scenes for summer. I really responded just impulsively to this change of season. And that's Mm -hmm. where the pantser style really worked for me. Whereas now I'm more driven towards called the plotter as a writer. And a plotter is someone that does just that. They outline every step of the way and you plan it out. And the reason, the benefit of that, and this is where it might help someone trying to get into a gallery, is I think it's the fastest way to find your style. Because what the planning does, even though I'm an impulsive person, it makes me focus and get refined before I just get all these paints and paper and get sidetracked easily. So you start planting, basically. You can start Mm -hmm. with like a secret Pinterest board and just grab ideas. Mm -hmm. And then once you get this central idea, you use a mind map. You might have used heard of them for brainstorming. And a mind map takes, I do a lot of birch trees. So pretend that's the base of my series. And that's my center spoke of the mind map wheel. And then I think about how do I, what's the symbolism of these birch trees? And if I do a little research, I learn that they peel their bark to grow. And I thought mm-hmm. that's perfect for me because for me to have the resilience to become an artist, I had to peel back my layers of outside stereotype of being mm-hmm. that traditional homemaker goal and what was really inside to uncover. And so the symbolism now, my mind map starts growing by subdividing and subdividing. And I have something to talk about, something that I'm passionate about, something that the audience can relate to and mimic. My life mimics theirs. And it brings credibility to my series. And it keeps me focused on the trees, whether they're bare branch and struggling, or if they're full of leaf and full of growth. And so this is where I feel this plotter as a writer can be used for an artist to help you find your style. And I kind of got sidetracked because I was talking about how to approach a gallery, but I think when I suggest that you go in with a portfolio of a style, maybe you understand Mm -hmm. what I'm saying a little bit more because you really want to bring your best work and you want it to be consistent. Mm -hmm. And then 
you also want to show the gallery that you're appropriate for them. It's like when mm-hmm. I moved out West and it was all wildlife, I wasn't in a wildlife gallery. I wouldn't mm-hmm. fit. And you need to fit with your niche if you want to be successful for them mm-hmm. and for yourself. It needs to be a win-win for both of them. Uh, the other thing is I would keep exploring that gallery. If it's mostly a print gallery and you only paint originals, that wouldn't be the place for you. And right. so you start narrowing down where you're most likely to be successful. I was successful at the hospital. Yes, because of my nursing background, it was my comfort zone. I could talk their language. Mm-hmm. I didn't try to sell to an automotive shop. I, I really... <laughs> Right. Well, I would take, it would take some, some serious research for me to be successful, nor was it my passion. So mm-hmm. I think trying to get into a, a gallery, it takes a little investigation to make sure that you're the right fit. Mm-hmm. And then if you're going to apply, there's several things. It's nice finding out who the contact person is mm-hmm. and making sure that you follow the directions according to the directions. I mean, these are simple, basic things, but the other thing is gallery people are busy and it's nice to make sure that you have an appointment. If you go mm-hmm. in and you're out of town, just expect to inquire. Don't expect to show your portfolio. You can have it, but I wouldn't be demanding in any way. You're just trying to build that relationship. And mm-hmm. I think doing those things help you to be more successful at perhaps landing a gallery representation. And it's usually a 50% split, which seems like a lot for artists, because you do want to make sure that if you're doing art fairs on the side, in addition to the gallery representation, you need to make sure that you match your prices. Yes. And so it's like, that is a big overhead, but I would hope you would remember that they're marketing for you 24 seven. And they're there when you can't be there and they have the lights to pay and they have the staff to talk about your work and you don't have to do all of that. And Mm -hmm. when you set your price at the art fair, it's beneficial if you consider not just your painting time, but your setup time and your application time. And and I think your audience has great respect for this because they know what it takes to do their job and the hours that they give and what that paycheck represents. But it's the same philosophy when you try to get it into your freelance work. And I, I say that because then it gives them hopefully the backbone to charge what you're worth. I mean, mm-hmm. that's another whole issue that we don't have to spend time on, but it's knowing you're worthy of the price mm-hmm. that you are to charge. So, so yeah. I hope I answered your question about getting into some of the galleries. Yeah, I know. I think that's huge. The idea of pricing too, that's still a struggle for me figuring out what I'm going to price things at. And then what am I actually taking home if I'm working with a gallery? One way of thinking about it that I really liked that I felt like was helpful was, like you said, the gallery is sort of your broker and they get a commission for that. But then when you sell on your own, you can think about yourself as your own broker. So you're getting that commission now. So it's not that your price is like, well, now it's drastically different. I'm getting so much more. It's no, it's the price is set and you're not going to sell things for less when you're selling just on your own because then you're undercutting your gallery and they're not going to want to work with you if you do that. (laughs) But I love the idea of thinking about yourself as your own broker. And like, now I get the price I would get as the artist and then also the commission because I'm my own broker. Well, it's true because you do have called overhead, as you know, Mm -hmm. and nowadays we can do so much on tech, but tech, even your website, you have your hosting fee and Mm -hmm. you have, if you're creating an email list, you have your email subscriber fee. And these are all broker fees. Mm-hmm. And and if you really struggle, you don't have to join a gallery, but it helps your peace of mind. I think, like you said, if you consider yourself 
that it's, you're actually working two jobs, you're mm-hmm. the broker and the artist, whereas at the gallery, you're just the artist. Right. So it, I think mindset is real important. So it's yeah, great. definitely. And then the mindset too, of the price for your work, and it can feel so arbitrary. I know it's helped me to create these elaborate spreadsheets, but to really track all of my real expenses and then also track my real time and realize that at this point, the price I'm putting on my work, that's kind of, I've talked to the gallerists that I'm working with and figured out where can I actually sell it at? Yes. Yes. That price feels really high, but when I track everything, it's not actually even covering everything. No, no. It's it's (laughs) it's like working up to that, working up to that. Exactly. But you have respect for it and and then you have Mm -hmm. confidence for setting that price. And that's, what's most important. You feel good. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other thing you talk about mindset, the other question that I feel like is really helpful. And so many artists have so many different answers for this, but thinking about creative block and for you, what gets you out of that creative block? Well, I'm pretty lucky that I can start and stop when you give me a block of time. Mm-hmm. But of course, like all of us, there's challenges that your mind wanders and you feel responsibilities that you should be doing other things, mm-hmm. even laundry or right. other things that just have to get done. So when you're ready to dive in, it's nice to be able to just quickly turn that spinning wheels off and focus on your creativity and be productive. Mm-hmm. And I, I have learned one trick over the years. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it, but it's creating a trigger mm-hmm. and a trigger can be an event or a habit that you do. And it just tells your subconscious and your mental brain to just start the action. Mm-hmm. And for me, I wanted something I'm a visual person and I use the five senses a lot being an Mm -hmm. artist. So my trigger was I picked mint tea Mm -hmm. because at Christmas time, that was always comforting. And I thought it has such a spicy aroma. I could use that as a tool for my productivity. And I first heard about this use of a trigger and I was skeptical at first because it kind of reminded me a bit of like Poslow's classical dog training Mm -hmm. and getting him to respond after a certain direction. And so I picked my tea and I started this when I was writing my memoir. And Mm -hmm. I worked on those mornings like I did with the Tuesday mornings of paying bill, except that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning were my window for writing. Mm -hmm. And so I would drag my tea down to the basement of the thousand year old building. Actually, it was only a hundred years old. It wasn't a (laughs) thousand. It was in all my workspace was down in the basement above the retail store. Mm-hmm. So I'd go down into the, the basement and I'd crack open the lid of that tea and I'd let the steam of it just kind of kiss my cheek. And I would take a whiff of that peppery scent. I kept telling myself, this is your trigger. This is the scent mm-hmm. that you're just going to write. And so every day I would brew that tea. That was a writing day. And I made it a habit, just like showering or brushing my teeth. Mm-hmm. And I, I did it over and over. And it wasn't, but just even a week later that I really found myself responding and being able to turn off the other noise, the outside noise, the other obligations and get writing. And I think some people I've read that it helps if you define a few rules too. And something like for me, it was real simple. I never really wrote them out, but I wrote them out now to think about what they were. And it was 
as I would take a whiff of that mint tea, I would open up my Word doc and I'd go to write to where I left off. And then I'd read the notes of, I'd usually write myself a little message of where I left off and maybe three Mm. key things I wanted to jumpstart again. Mm. And then I would start typing. And as I would sip, I would sip the tea. I would tell myself, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It doesn't matter Mm. if I'm making a transition from what I did on Monday and today is Wednesday. It doesn't matter if it's good grammar or punctuated correctly. All I have to do is just write. Mm -hmm. Just take a whiff and just start writing the next sentence in the next sentence, because there's Mm -hmm. time to edit later. And Mm -hmm. I didn't answer the phone. It's kind of back to what we talked about batch working and, you know, staying focused. And I really found that having this trigger gave my subconscious permission to play, to Mm -hmm. just let loose and not be so bogged down with other responsibilities. And maybe someone will give it a try and find it helpful too. Yeah. I love that idea. It's Something I tried when I was having trouble with breastfeeding, actually, it was something I read about kind of triggering your mind to let the milk come out. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it worked a little bit. Like I just, I had a lot of struggles with that, but the idea is so powerful and the mind body connection and the, the sense of scent is so strong, It triggers memories, it triggers all these things. So Yeah, I think that's a really powerful idea. And I wouldn't give up on it. I think trying it is just as important of whether it worked or not. And I think, Mm -hmm. like you said, that ability to relax with breastfeeding can be very monumental. One, your your energy level is at an all-time low. You're in a new experience. Mm -hmm. You've got, if you're like my mom, you have a thousand and one tips to try. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a lot of pressure that it's just difficult. So that doesn't mean that a trigger won't work for something else that you do later. Right. And it is nice when you can get it to connect and it's always worth trying. Yeah. And then the other thing you touched on there was the idea of being okay with failure, being okay with mistakes and just letting it flow, which I think you're talking about it in writing, like, don't worry about the grammar. We can edit later, but in art making too, that's huge. Just like, get it out, make a lot of work. And some of it will be crap and you like cut it up later or, (laughs) you know, like not everything has to be a masterpiece, just get it all out. And eventually good stuff will come out. Oh, it's true. And I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting. I I think for artists, we're always our own worst critic. You know, we Mm -hmm. expect perfection. We think we're going to paint and it's going to be a masterpiece every time. And what's interesting is that when I look at other professions, say you're a baseball player, you're a professional baseball player, and he wants to hit a home run. He can hit a home run, but he doesn't hit it every time. Even Mm -hmm. after hours and years of coaching and practice and due diligence, it's just reality. And I I don't think sometimes artists give themselves the same amount of grace Mm -hmm. and it's okay. There's always room to edit because some of my best pieces come from when I take the good part of this picture and the part I like about that picture and I make a new painting. Mm -hmm. And when I work in canvas, it's even better because I can then just read gesso on top of it and start again. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. (laughs) That's where I think teaching with kids is so good because sometimes their resilience just... Mm pushes us in our nature to let perfectionism go and just play because part of teaching, if you're teaching kids is to just let them play. Yeah. And they're so inspiring. Yeah. Yes. It's good for us. Yes, totally. 
And thinking kind of along those lines, I'd love to hear you describe your work for someone who hasn't seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might laugh at this because I do name it. I call it Sister Impressionism. Mm. And the reason I do that is, of course, you know the Impressionists like Monet and Van Gogh, and they're very known for their impasto style of layering paints and either palette knife or loose brushwork. But then they also have this accurate depiction of light. And that's Mm -hmm. where I kind of fall short on being a master Impressionist because I do do the thick paints. I use a palette knife and I start with a light source and I have a plan for a light source. (laughs) When I hit the canvas, color kind of takes over. Mm-hmm. And generally, most times what I end up with isn't what I envisioned when I started. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I, I have a good time and I am very comfortable with color. I think that comes from several things. One, my nursing background, surprisingly, again, I back then I learned you know, more the psychological benefits of color, mm-hmm. of how they can switch your moods and red is for energy, blue is soothing. And then mm-hmm. those years of working those part-time jobs, I color mixed to follow the trends, you know, to pay mm-hmm. bills. I followed the color trends and I pretty much can match any Pantone color of the year that you had. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel confident in color. So I, I think that's why maybe those two reasons it comes to the forefront and I lose the light direction. Mm-hmm. And that's where my passion is. And I think when we work with our passions, we have a better chance of being successful mm-hmm. because it lets your intuition and your innateness and those spinning wheels of your mind just mm-hmm. settle down and let you create. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking at some of your paintings now. And, you know, you talked about having a style and the way that you're manipulating the paint. There's a little bit of variation. You've got the sort of thicker palette knife, and then some parts are maybe a little bit drippy. Yeah, yeah. I do still those early years of watercolor come through Mm -hmm. even in my oils. I'll I'll work really thickly, but then I'll get the turpentine out and Mm -hmm. thin it down and do some vary the texture. It's kind of fun. Yeah. And do you still do some watercolor? I do, but not as Mm -hmm. often. And that Mm -hmm. was pretty much demand driven again from retail. In our first recession in Michigan hit pretty hard in the 2000 and canvas art started taking over primarily because it didn't involve the cost of a frame. Mm. And so this unfinished clean look of canvases really became popular and contemporary art was growing also. And that became popular. So those two combinations just pushed me to leave watercolor a little bit more behind Mm -hmm. where the customer didn't need the frame and glass, especially UV glass to protect it and the matting because that keeps the glass away from the art. Mm -hmm. And so to have those standards selling in retail, I just didn't have the expense. And so it was a way to give me a different price point. Mm -hmm. So, and then I found out I loved it. I, I think as an artist, we're always growing and it's just a way to continue to evolve. So I've been loyal to my palette knife for probably the last 10 years, 15 years. Nice. Yeah. And I love that you also have on your site coloring pages and you had talked earlier about working with the hospital and also making a coloring book, but the idea of having coloring pages that really also kind of bring out your style almost as I see them as like a marketing tool that you're it has offering this freebie. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. It started in the gallery when 
probably seven years ago, coloring for adult coloring books became very popular. And so I designed some to hand out as single sheets for customers when they came Mm -hmm. in as it had my name on it. It was a a way of making a connection beyond a business card. It was visual. Mm -hmm. It got them involved in the arts. And I keep them on my site now, primarily who it attracts are more in, they may be able to use this in your teaching is for art therapy, even for the kids, Mm. because coloring is just a way to instantly build your imagination and Mm. see progress. It reminds me of hanging wallpaper. You hang wallpaper and you get this instant gratification of, oh, wow, look at that. You know, it's right there in front of you. And I think coloring, you get that same look what I did in any age, any mm-hmm. skill level can be successful at it because there's no right or wrong way. And it mm-hmm. doesn't take an expensive tool. You don't have to mix colors. You don't have to wait and let it dry. You can start over. I mean, printing a new page costs peanuts. So mm-hmm. it's just been a nice tool to offer. So maybe someone can use that as an idea too, because it has worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And I love the idea of coloring pages that are, like you said, adult coloring pages. So they're more intricate, more detailed, but I see such a visual connection to your paintings too, which is really nice. So you can almost feel like you're participating with the artist as you color these. Oh, I never thought of it that way that you're right. It would, it would connect to someone that way. Mm-hmm. Because I do get asked a lot of times if I teach. And like I said, I, I still do offer an advanced watercolor class. It's something mm-hmm. that I feel I know quite well, but my passion just isn't there. So I haven't taken the time to market or explore it. I, I used to actually use back when I was teaching in person in a classroom, I always had coloring pages. I made a bunch of copies from more of the adult coloring pages for kids to get out and color all those little tiny intricate sort of patterns. And they loved it as you know, you're done, you're like in between projects, you just want to kind of like mind break, you can do this coloring page. That's a great tool for teachers to use coloring that way. Mm -hmm. Just be a supplement because kids do finish at different times, Mm -hmm. and then they get restless, and then they can be disruptive. So it's something to have just a quick handout and let them still be independent, but be productive. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So sort of starting to wrap up, I have a few just get to know you more questions. What are you curious about right now? I think always learning this Mm -hmm. with COVID and being isolated a little bit more. I love the online learning opportunities. I've Mm -hmm. gone in and dove into many classes that I normally probably wouldn't do. And it just fuels your creativity. I've always been a big reader and I love reading a mix of works. I've read a lot of, I call them junior fictions. Those are based Mm -hmm. on the stories of when my kids were more from the ages of six to 12 little adventures we went on. So I read a lot of those books to kind of see what they were doing right, what I could glean from them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my memoir took me into reading many biographies, and I still enjoy those. It's, it's those are real eye openers. Mm-hmm. So I think my curiosity is just the passion to keep learning and to keep trying and to keep growing. Yeah, that's important. And fun, kind of silly question: What is your favorite food? 
Oh, well, outside of the mint tea. Yeah. <laughs> Your trigger food. Yeah, that's my that's my trigger one. So I don't count that as my favorite. My favorite would be coffee ice cream. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I can't have it in the house because I think I need to eat the whole pint. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the mint tea, I can keep that, you know, in the box and it's just fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. You have to buy little bits. And <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Is there anything I missed? Anything you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to yet? No, I... I do respect all the teachers that give 110%. My daughter-in-law is a teacher and I know how hard they work, whether you're a full-time teacher or a teaching artist, it still takes incredible effort and patience. Mm -hmm. And I believe really strongly that we're all teachers, even though I'm not teaching on a schedule presently, nor have I in the last handful of years, but people do mimic us all the time. Mm And they follow our actions. They're learning from us. We're role models. And and that's teaching. It's teaching without Mm -hmm. curriculum. It's teaching without structure. But it takes the same tenacity to be someone that can just be productive in society and contribute back. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what fuels me as an artist is just knowing I do my best and I can Mm -hmm. look back and know I tried my hardest and be satisfied with that. I don't really have a bucket list of whole activities but I have a bucket list of I've done that. You know, I tried. It doesn't matter if I succeeded or not, but I can look back and know I tried. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting for me. And I, I think as teachers, if you feel like you're not quite being able to conquer all your dreams, you'll always be a teacher mm-hmm. and you're always going to be satisfied because of what you've been able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of you. I think they should be proud of themselves. <laughs> oh, Yes. Be proud of what you've done. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that's that's my two cents. That's great. And then is there anyone you'd want to thank or give a shout out to? Oh, everybody who's ever bought a painting of mine, of course. Mm. And of course, my husband just supports whatever crazy idea I come up with <laughs> next. We've tried all kinds of things of keeping that retail business alive over the years. And it's just wonderful having that happy, healthy relationship. And I feel so blessed. And then there's my sons. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. So I'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> I know it's so hard to pick and choose. You're like, everyone. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and last thing, where can listeners connect with you online? Well, I have a website. I am Kate Moynihan, M-O-Y-N-I-H-A-N, artist.com. And then I do Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. And I will link to all of that as well. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, Kate. This was so helpful. It was great for me. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoy your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.